Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Can I take a really simple, unscientific poll this morning? Uh, Raise your hands if uh, in this past week you have had to do something that you did not want to do. All right? (laughs) Or liars, right? (laughs) Whether it was, you know, taking the trash out at uh, 25 below like it was earlier this week or uh, maybe a difficult phone call or conversation you had to have at work or maybe it was uh, paper or homework that you just didn't want to do. Each one of us had probably had something that we did not want to do in this past week. And uh, hold that thought in the back of your brain for a second, because I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Uh, We've just wrapped up here at Maranatha a long series on 2 Corinthians. We began studying Paul's personal letter to a wounded congregation way back in September, and uh, just finished up last week. If my math is right, Pastor Lloyd and I spent about 17 weeks in, in the 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians. And we are currently just a couple of weeks away from Lent, aren't we? Which begins with Ash Wednesday on February 26th. And so instead of starting a new sermon series on a book of the Bible or a specific topic, Pastor Lloyd and I will be preaching from the pericope. The pericope is that three-year cycle of, of selected texts from the Old Testament, the Gospel, and the Epistles. And if you've ever wondered how we chose, choose the scripture passages to read on Sunday, that we do, it's usually the pericope text that we are following. It's not a hard and fast, rigid rule, uh, but it does serve as a, as a guide for where to begin each week, right? This is a, this is a big book, isn't it? <laughs> so it's nice to have a, a thing that says, here, start here, begin with this, right? Uh, pericope also helps from keeping a uh, pastor off of his hobby horse, right? And so that way you don't hear a whole bunch of sermons on the same topic week after week after week. And the pericope also forces a pastor to preach on texts that he might not normally preach on. Uh, like this sermon text for this morning, for example. <laughs> yeah, even I had to do something that I necessarily didn't want to do uh, this week. Uh, this passage of Scripture that we're going to study this morning won't crack anybody's top ten favorite Bible li- <clears throat> list and there aren't too many happy-go-lucky feelings in this text. It's a difficult text to wrestle with. It focuses primarily on the unbelief, on the hardness of hearts, on the, uh, the cowardice of those who had heard Jesus teach. And so as I began to read and to prepare for this message, I contemplated preaching something easier like one of the scripture texts that were read earlier this morning, or maybe a genealogy, or maybe anything from Leviticus, right? That's kind of where I was going. But I think the Lord wanted me to wrestle through this text with you all this morning. So that being said, if you have your Bibles, open up to John. John chapter 12. It's on page 845 in the Pew Bible in front of you there. And while you're finding it, let me set the stage just briefly for this text. It's Holy Week. All right, Jesus has just triumphantly ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey as the crowds were singing their praise to him. And then he begins to talk with the crowd. 
and right, uh, and we begin this morning in our sermon text right in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having. And this, by the way, is one of those final conversations uh, that Jesus would have during his ministry. And again, we're right, jumping right in the middle of this conversation. Uh, why don't you stand with me as I read John chapter 12, we're beginning in verse 32, reading through verse 43. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 32, reading in Jesus' name. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is your word to us today and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. May your word find good soil within our hearts today and as we begin to wrestle with some of these difficult things in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are, like I mentioned, there are quite a few challenging things in this text that we need to wrestle with this morning if we're going to rightly understand what John is trying to communicate to us this morning. And the first, uh, I guess I've got to turn this on here, uh, the first round, if you will, of this wrestling match, John deals with the, the reasons that people had for not believing in Jesus. I counted at least three. And the first reason why the people didn't believe in Jesus is that they were looking for a Messiah, for a Christ, a Savior of their own design. In the text we read this morning, again, it begins with Jesus describing his death to the crowd and, and their reaction to it. Again, just looking at John chapter 12, uh, 12, verse 32 and 33, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Remember, this is Holy Week, the, the week of Jesus' life between Palm Sunday and Easter. This means that Jesus is just a few days away from his own betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion. And thousands of years of prophecy and foreshadow and 33 years of ministry or life and, and three years of ministry have led Jesus to this point, to this very point. Soon, Jesus would be nailed to a cross. He would die the death 
of a criminal, even though he had done no wrong. Jesus' death, his, his being lifted up from the earth, however, wasn't without purpose. God was using the death of his son to accomplish the redemption of the world. This was the plan that the triune God had formulated even before the world began. In Revelation 13:8, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. On the cross, God the Father laid your sins upon his Son. Jesus became sin for you. And in exchange, believer, you have been clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And now when God looks at you, he no longer sees you as, as the dirty, rotten sinner that you are, but he sees you instead through his Son, through Jesus. And this is why Jesus came and was lifted up to make you finally and ultimately right with God. But the Jews of Jesus' day weren't necessarily looking for a spiritual savior. They had the Old Testament sacrificial system that was working quite fine, thank you very much. Instead, they were looking for a political savior to deliver them from the tyranny of Rome, right? They were expecting their Messiah to physically fulfill the promises that God had made to David nearly a thousand years prior. The Lord God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne would be established forever and that David would always have a descendant to sit upon the throne. That's what verse 16 there talks about. And that's a great promise for a king, isn't it? David, your kingdom, the kingdom that you have given so much blood, sweat, and tears to, it won't ever be destroyed. It will be established forever. What kind of king would not want to hear those words? But if you know your Old Testament history, it would have seemed that God's promise to David had been broken shortly thereafter, right, with the destruction and exile of first Israel and then later on Judah. What kind of forever kingdom is destroyed by foreign nations? And so the Jews began to look for messiahs who would deliver them from their physical oppressors, first Assyria and then Babylon and Persia, then Greece and Rome, and that Messiah would ultimately then in their minds establish once and for all the throne of David and the, the physical nation of Israel yet again. But at Christ's first coming, his, his first advent, it wasn't a political movement, was it? More than a, a national redemption, Jesus knows that each person needs redemption personally and deliverance from their sins. And so in his first coming, Jesus provided that, redemption through his blood and deliverance from the consequences of sin. Through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins and grace and mercy freely available for all. Amen? Amen. And we acknowledge that at Jesus' second coming, he will establish his forever kingdom, right? But for Jesus, it was first things first. Our redemption on the cross first and then the kingdom. But the Jews missed it because they were looking for a Christ of their own design, a second reason that they had for, for not believing in Jesus is that they tried to explain away his miracles. Look again at verse 37. It says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
John, in his gospel, as he writes his gospel, he points to seven specific signs or, or miracles that Jesus did, from the changing of water into wine at, at the wedding to the feeding of the 5,000 to, to raising Lazarus from the dead. Each one of those signs pointed beyond that sign to who Jesus is, the Son of God, and was given as proof of his claims. These signs and the miracles brought the people face to face with the power of God through Jesus. And they were so extraordinary that those who witnessed them had to, had, were challenged to come to some sort of conclusion as to who Jesus was. In the Gospels, there are around 35 specific miracles or specific signs that Jesus did in order to prove that he is the Christ sent by the Lord God. And that number 35 doesn't even include the, the multitude of nameless individuals whom Jesus healed, but were simply summarized in this way. He cast out the demonic spirits with the word and he healed those who were sick, Matthew chapter 8. And at the conclusion of his gospel, John gives the reason why Jesus did all of these signs. Look at these verses here. Now Jesus did many other miracles or many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs and the miracles that Jesus did showed that he was the Messiah. John recorded them for us so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But again, the, the Jews of Jesus' day tried to explain away the miracles. Jesus was often accused of doing miracles, yes, but doing them by the power of the devil. The logic went something like this. If Jesus can cast out demons, then he must be in authority over them. Therefore, he is in league with Satan. They tried to logically explain away what they saw. And over the years, people haven't given up trying to explain away Jesus' miracles and the other miracles found in Scripture. Some attribute specific miracles to a specific natural phenomena. Uh, for example, it's been argued that the parting of the Red Sea during the exodus from Egypt was due only to a really strong wind that blew all the water away, right? Or the, uh, the manna that they ate for 40 years in the wilderness uh, some argue that that's a specific type of beetle cocoon that they ate for 40 years. It's a lot of beetles to eat for a long time, <laughs> right? Or, or that they say that when Jesus walked on the water, right, he simply found a really convenient shallow sandbar to walk to the middle of the lake on, <laughs> right? All of these represent real actual attempts to explain away the miracles of Scripture. One of the... Uh, one of the founding fathers of the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson, was, was famous for his disbelief in anything supernatural. Jefferson, right, our third president, uh, was a deist and was a naturalist. He couldn't bring himself to believe in anything that couldn't be explained reasonably. So Jefferson took the Gospels, like you would in your Bible, and he literally cut and pasted, right? Not control X, control Z like we do today on a keyboard, but he literally cut and pasted with razors and glue from the Gospels only that which he found believable, that which had no mention of any supernatural things or miracles. And he wrote it all in a book and he called it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And if you're interested, you can go on the Smithsonian's website, and uh, they've got pictures of all of it there, all the whole book there. This is called Jefferson's Bible, and it ends with Jesus being laid in the tomb and his disciples departing. (laughs) And that's the end of the story in Jefferson's Bible. Jefferson said in 1819, 10 years after his presidency ended, he said, I am of a religion by myself as far as I know. I don't know of of anyone who has gone to Jefferson's extent, physically cutting up and laying aside the parts of Scripture that we do not agree with, but culture today is is just as guilty of trying to explain away or to simply neglect the parts of God's Word that we don't like or have a hard time understanding, right? God creating everything in six days? (laughs) I don't know about that one, right? Or uh, what about the slaughter of the Canaanites? What's that all about, God? We're just going to ignore that one for a while. (laughs) Or or what's this stuff about lusting after somebody else's spouse being just like adultery? It seems a bit excessive, right? Or or this ancient, outdated concept of of God creating only two genders, male and female, and God declaring that men shouldn't marry men and women shouldn't marry women. Yeah, that's a hot topic, hot-button topic, isn't it, right now? Culture has become the master of explaining away these things that we don't like or understand in God's word. And when we do, we're no less guilty than the Jews in Jesus' day who tried to explain away his miracles. A third reason why the people had for not believing in Jesus is maybe the hardest one for us to wrestle with, to struggle with. Their hearts had become hard to the things of God. It's been a while, so let's go back and read these verses again. Verses uh, 37 through 41. It says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 39 is the tough one, uh, at least for me, to understand in these verses, right? They could not believe. This is John, remember, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit commenting on what he witnessed from the Jews in Jesus' day. They could not believe. Why? What prevented them? And again, John looks back to the Old Testament, to the Bible that he had for answers, and he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In verse 40 here, John quotes a passage from when when Isaiah got his own call and commission from the Lord. At the time of Isaiah's ministry, the nations of Israel and Judah were in severe decline, both politically and spiritually. They had begun to be oppressed by foreign invaders, specifically the Assyrians. And in a a cycle of spiritual decline, they had begun to worship the gods of the nations that surrounded them. They worshipped the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Moabites, the gods of the Egyptians. These foreign nations led God's people away from the worship of the one true God. And so God sent Isaiah to warn his people of the pending judgment and to provide them with the Lord's presence and comfort in those dark times. When the Lord tells Isaiah what to say to his people, he says it in an almost tongue-in-cheek fashion here from Isaiah uh, chapter 6. 
This is the Lord, and he says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You see, the Lord had been continually calling to his people throughout the law and, and throughout the prophets whom God had sent them. Prophet after prophet after prophet had been sent by God and called to his people and called to his people to repent and to return to him. But time and time again, God's people turned a deaf ear to the Lord and would not heed his call. And by the time Isaiah had been sent, Israel had become hardened, had become calloused to the word of the Lord. In, in the right place, calluses can be good things, can't they, right? Those who learn to play guitar quickly uh, develop calluses on their fingers so they can push the strings, right? Some, sometimes shoes or, or boots require a break-in period, right? So that your feet can uh, adjust and develop specific calluses in certain places, right? And farmers whose hands have worked year after year after year have developed calluses on them. Calluses cause you not to feel pain that you might uh, normally experience. But calloused ears and a calloused heart are detrimental. Israel had been so used to hearing God call his people to repentance through the law and through the prophets that their ears had developed calluses and that their hearts were hardened to his moving in their lives. So even when, Israel came, or when Isaiah came, the Lord tells Isaiah to pass on a message to his people. It's as if God is saying, keep on hearing my word, keep on reading scripture, keep on going to church, but don't be changed by it. Don't let it affect you or shape who you are as a person. Keep watching what I'm doing, but don't pay any attention to it. Don't understand. Watch, listen, be entertained, but don't go beyond that. Go to church, again, expecting to be entertained, not to have your soul ministered to. Spend time hanging out with other believers, but keep your conversation shallow, like on sports or the weather or politics and not the things of God. Keep reading my word, God says, but only so you can check off the box on your 2020 New Year's resolutions, right? Not so that you grow more in my grace and my holiness. That was the state of the people in Israel or in Isaiah's day. Hard, calloused hearts. It was also the state of the people in Jesus' day as well. He had ministered to them for the last three years, teaching them God's word, doing signs and miracles among them. But even then, they had become calloused and hard to what God was doing in and among them through his son. And we shouldn't read these verses here and, and lay the blame of unbelief and calloused hearts of the people on God's shoulders. He's not the one who is causing the calluses. The blame for unbelief and calloused hearts lies squarely on, on the shoulders of the hearers and the, on those whose hearts have become hard because of their continual rejection of God's word. These verses from John 12 and from uh, Isaiah 6 are, aren't talking about what's been dubbed double predestination. If you've, if you've heard that term, uh, double predestination is a, I believe, wrong teaching that says that God created certain people to be saved and certain people who could never be saved. 
And those who adhere to double predestination would point to verses like this and Paul's additional thoughts on the Jews' calloused hearts in Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11 in there, yeah. <laughs> to argue that God created people who could never, ever, under any circumstances, come to faith in Jesus. Those who are unsaved in a double predestination uh, train of thought. Those who are unsaved can never be saved and those who are saved can never be unsaved. And this teaching, of course, flies against some of the most basic teachings of Scripture, right? Throughout the Bible, the Lord God is continually calling all people to himself. He is continually inviting all people to take up his offer of grace and mercy found in Jesus. For example, look at John chapter 12, verse 46 here. I think I have that on the screen here, yeah. Uh, Just after these uh, verses that we're studying this morning, Jesus says this, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It's not God's desire that the unsaved would remain in their unbelief and in their spiritual darkness. Jesus came to give his life for all so that you could have life and have it abundantly. Paul told Timothy that that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus famously told Nicodemus that God so loved the world, so loved the world, everybody that he gave, his one and only son. God is loving. God desires that all would come to faith in Jesus. And that's why he's continually calling to you here today through his word. That's why we're warned against hardening our ears and our hearts and developing calluses to his word. We need to be both hearers and doers of the word. We need to both hear it and to believe in it. And thankfully, there were some who had heard Jesus' words who did believe in him. There are some who believe Jesus claims to be the Christ. There's another thing that we need to wrestle with in this text, however, and it's this, that even those who believed in Jesus were afraid to speak out about him. Look at verses 42 and 43 again. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Despite all the bad news of unbelief and calloused hearts, there was some good news in this text, right? Jesus tells us that there were some authorities who believed in Jesus. Maybe the the translation that you're reading there has the word leaders or rulers in it. Um, Whatever way it's been translated, this is most likely a reference to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They would have been like the uh, Supreme Court of that day, handling all matters of the law and having final say, final ultimate say on the law. And Nicodemus, for example, was one of these 70 men who made up the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea was another. And these men, probably along with some others, had believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. But yet, despite their belief in Jesus, the authorities who believed were silent about their faith. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night probably because he didn't want to be discovered by others who would turn him into the other Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea didn't show his true allegiance until after Jesus had been crucified. I would assume that there are others as well that we're just not simply told about. However, these authorities who believed in Jesus were silent about their faith because 
As John tells us, they were afraid of being excluded. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. That means they would lose their prominent place in the synagogue and in community as a whole. In Jesus' day, being put out of the synagogue was a, was a serious punishment. You couldn't get put out of the synagogue on 1st Avenue only to go to the synagogue on 4th Street next week. Usually each town only had one synagogue and if you were kicked out of it, uh, everybody in the entire town knew. It meant losing your prominence and your standing in the church, in the community too. You were in fact, right, canceled if you got put out of the synagogue. And so in our cancel culture today, we can understand that what they were going through at least, those who didn't want to be put out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus. They were also silent, we are told, because they were afraid of what other people would think. John tells us that they love the glory that comes from God, or I'm sorry, the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ouch. Yeah, most of us spend most of our time wondering about what, wondering what other people think about us, don't we? Should I wear this shirt? <laughs> Does that color look good on me, right? Or if I buy this really expensive truck, then people will think I'm awesome, right? Or, oh man, how could I have said such a stupid thing? Now everybody thinks I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> Your internal monologues probably go something like that as well, right? The fear of what others think of us can be so overpowering that we spend all of our time thinking about it, even if we do it subconsciously, right? And granted, there is a a positive aspect of others' opinions of us, right? Uh, The aspect that helps us chew with our mouths closed or or tells us not to belch in public too loudly anyway, right? (laughs) We, We run into trouble, though, when our lives and our thought processes are dominated by the opinions of others. And that's where the authorities, where the Sanhedrin who believed in Jesus ran into trouble, too. They were afraid of being excluded. They were afraid of what others would think. And there's a final truth that I want to wrestle with this morning regarding this text, and it's the topic uh, and the topics of unbelief and fear in general. Uh, Throughout his life, Jesus said that the cost of discipleship, the price we'd pay to follow him, would always be high, but the rewards are higher yet. We could look at a lot of places in Scripture where Jesus talked about this, but let's look at uh, just one, Mark chapter 8. And here is again Jesus calling out to the crowd and his disciples, and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange or in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. In these verses, Jesus touches on what it costs to follow him. The costs of discipleship have always been high, and he gives to those who follow him a threefold command. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, right? In denying ourselves, that means adhering to a, a radical obedience to the first commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, right? When you deny yourself, you take yourself off of the throne of your life, and instead you place the Lord God there, 
When you deny yourself, you lay aside all the, all aside your allegiances to the passing pleasures of sin and instead keep your eyes focused on Jesus. You no longer do just what you want to do, but you do as he wants you to do. You put the Lord Jesus and his priorities above your own. And we're also told to take up our cross. And that means when we follow Jesus, we will face persecution. And no, we don't personally witness outward violent persecutions like our brothers and sisters in uh, Libya do, for example, right? Remember them? We, we prayed for them this morning. They are facing some serious, intense persecution. For us, however, persecution might come from different areas, coworkers who scoff at your habitual prayer before lunch, classmates who tease you for before going to church on a Wednesday night, your progressive neighbors who harass you for still believing that the Bible is true and relevant. Take up your cross and follow him. Jesus commands you as, as disciples to continually follow him wherever he leads. Following Jesus isn't something you do when it's convenient or when you feel like being religious. Following Jesus is a continual daily process. It's the process of living and growing in daily repentance and faith in Jesus, continually trusting him in the ups and in the downs, in the ins and the outs, in the joys and the struggles of life, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. And if the cost of discipleship is and always has been high, then the rewards are higher yet. Jesus said at the end of verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's not only the martyrs for the faith who are the ones who have lost their lives for Jesus' sake. If we obey Jesus' commands to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, then we too in some small way have lost our lives for the gospel's sake. Our rewards, however, don't necessarily come, right, on this side of eternity. We aren't promised health and wealth the moment we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, but we are promised grace and mercy. We are promised his provision and his presence, his comfort and his strength through every trial of life. And we still have the hope of eternity, the hope of eternal life full of joy and peace, right? Free from sickness and sadness and injury and death. And when we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, as we do that, we are eagerly awaiting that day. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you would send Jesus quickly. We are oppressed on all sides with trials and persecutions and things of that nature, Father God. But we pray that you would send Jesus quickly. And in the meantime, soften our our hardened hearts, our our calloused ears to you and to your word. And may we not leave this place today without being changed or, or moved by what you would have for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our next hymn will be uh, hymn number 508 in your ambassador hymnal, Lift High the Cross. And if we can sing just the first and the last verses of this one. What's that? Yeah, two verses. The first and the last of Lift High the Cross. <laughs> 